Judges 15, verses 9 to 20. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of the place is called En-Hakor, and it is at, at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Okay, let's start with Oscar Wilde, a playwright and a novelist. He wrote this short little novel, a novella, called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And in this book, the guy named Dorian is beautiful. He's this good-looking guy, handsome. His good looks never seem to fade. And it's a, and when people see him, they're drawn to him. They, they can't get him out of their, their mind. He's just a beautiful-looking guy. And the downside is, of course, that his outside is not matched by his inside. He is depraved inside. He's, he's sensual. He, he's dominated by his feelings and his lusts. And yet, he's so beautiful on the outside. So we have this contrast. And he falls in love with a young woman named Sybil, uh, who's an actress, and he falls in love with her the only way such a sensual man can, superficially. And so they eventually, uh, he goes one day to see her, because she's an actress, and he goes and watches her perform uh, Romeo and Juliet. And he uh, doesn't like it. She's a terrible actress. And when he realizes she's a bad actress, he breaks up with her. He wants nothing to do with her, because he can't date somebody who's that terrible at their job. So he breaks up with her. She is so overcome because he has become everything to her that she commits suicide. And the very next day after the suicide, his friend Basil comes to see him to make sure he's okay. And he is shocked that Dorian is so jovial. He seems to not be bothered by it at all. So he starts to rebuke Dorian, saying, don't you know what's going on? What are you, an animal? And he starts letting him have it. And here is what happens from there on. Stop, Basil. I won't hear it, cried Dorian, leaping to his feet. You must not tell me about things. What is done is done. What is past is past. You call yesterday the past? What has the actual lapse of time got to do with it? It is only, a shallow, only shallow people who require years to get rid of an emotion. 
A man who is master of himself can end a sorrow as easily as he can invent a pleasure. I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them, to enjoy them, and to dominate them. Now, everyone reading the book knows Dorian, the great irony. Dorian is in no way dominating his emotions. He's a slave to them. Everything he sees, he must have. He can't resist his emotions at all. And that's why he's so offended when somebody suggests he tame them, that he's not using them well. And this leads us to Samson. Samson is Dorian. Maybe not as good looking. I don't know. I don't really, it doesn't really say much about his good looks. But Samson is a man driven by his lusts, driven by his passions. And you're going to see that, if you don't know it already, it's, 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 the fingerprints of this are all through the story. And Yet we have this paradox, just like Dorian. Dorian is good-looking, he's depraved, and yet he seems nothing goes wrong in his life. Everything seems to go well. And with Samson, you look at him, and his life is so contrary to almost everything Scripture says we should be. And yet God seems to favor him. That's what it looks like. And so it's an odd sort of story. And if we approach, part of the problem we have with, with, with Samson is we don't know how to read it. So as a church, we tend to read, I mean capital C Church, not just Redeemer, we go to the Bible stories of the Old Testament and we expect them to be fables and morality tales. We expect them to tell us what is good and what is bad, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. And if you read it as a morality tale and come to Samson and say, what can I learn about drawing near to God through the life of Samson? As a Christian, you are going to be, um, let's say, uh, you'll find it bizarre. You'll find the story unhelpful. You'll be questioning God's character. Why? Because there's, because there's, it seems to be nothing worthwhile, especially as you read it carefully. And if you're a skeptic and a non-believer, as you, and an unchurched person, and you're reading the story, you come away with a sense of repugnance towards the Christian God. Because how could he possibly use this sort of a human being as his agent? Because Samson is a scoundrel to the nth degree, time and again. And so if you read the story saying, what is in it? What can I learn about, me, about God and how to, how to be close to him and how to be like Samson? It's wrong. You're going to hate the story or you're going to just spout heresy. You're not going to tell it right. And that's what we, we risk doing in our children's ministry at times is we try to make Samson's story so palatable that our kids come away knowing more about Samson than they do about Othniel, the only good judge. And we think Samson is a good man who's faithful. And is he? Is he? Well, we'll see. He's called faithful in Hebrews. Let's, we're going to address that. So the only way to view this story and actually get something from it, where you're actually going to understand what God is doing, is to take it on the terms it comes to you at. And that is to see that God is the hero, not Samson. Again, which I think I've said every week since we started this, this series. So we're going to see there's three characters in this story. And if you look at each of them, there's a layer of the story being revealed to us. And it's going to show us more about who God is and who we are in relation to who God is. So we're going to learn about the sleep of Israel, the heart of Samson, and the faithfulness of God. Okay, so the sleep of Israel. If, I don't know if you all know ancient history well, but in around the 12th century, the early 12th century, 1177 to be exact, B.C., something happens. Something seismic happens in the ancient Near East, in Palestine and Egypt. And what happens is, and it's so intoxicating to read the history, because if you read just the archaeological pieces, it sounds like a horror movie. Because the Egyptians and the people in, the, in, in Palestine, the Hittites, the Mycenaeans in Greece, they start to write, and you get fragments 
on shards of pottery and on papyrus. And all it says is, they're coming. They're coming. Can't be stopped. They can't be stopped. And a people go through that area and destroy the Hittites, destroy the Mycenaeans, destroy the Canaanites after the Jews got there. and And then they turn their face towards Egypt. And nobody knows who they are. In fact, well, now we do. But at the time, nobody knew. It was a shock because when they appeared on the shores of Egypt, Ramses III is the pharaoh. And he starts writing. We have inscriptions. We can show the picture up there. Of, it's a fresco of part of this battle. And you see the Egyptians fighting these people they call the sea people. And these sea people come. And one of the strange things is they don't have a country. So they're not really from anywhere. They don't have any uniform uh, uh, uniformed soldiers. So some of them are wearing tunics. Some of them are wearing kilts. Some of them are bare-chested. They're all using weird weapons. Some are using, like, kitchen implements. It's just a random, ragtag group of people just pushing their way through. And we now know them as the Philistines. Because the sea people, that's what Philistine means, Peleset in, in, in Greek or Egyptian, that's what they refer to them as. So the Philistines, the word is, means sea people. And they eventually get rebuffed by Egypt. Egypt defeats them, and Ramses boasts about it, how he was the only guy to be able to stop them. And eventually, they have to push towards Palestine, and they settle along the coast of Israel, and they take up residence in these five cities, Ashkelon, Gaza, and so on, along the coast. And they, from there, become the thorn in the side of Israel. So, I bring this up because of this. When the Philistines come, because they're such, it looks like they're a multicultural people, They were created, the Philistines, out of, we think anyway, out of overpopulation. There was nowhere for them to be, and so they started looking for fertile ground to have homes and farms. So they just get on boats and they find place. And they settle themselves in Palestine. And as they do, maybe because they're multicultural, they become very tolerant of other peoples. So despite the fact that they have a very bad rap in the Bible, rightfully so, they are actually a really good overlord. They're not super oppressive, they're not that violent against the people they dominate, and they allow them to have religious autonomy. In fact, it's pretty good living under the Philistines, as far as any other people. And this is part of the problem. After 40 years, we're told, Israel has been under the thumb of the Philistines. After 40 years, they've begun to get very comfortable being subject to the Philistines. And historians will say, we may not realize it, but this is the most dangerous time in the history of the church because at that moment is the closest the church and the people of God ever came to disappearing. Because, not because of the dominance, right? We, we, the church never, is never crushed and never sees a diminishment under persecution, only in times of pleasure. Only in times of comfort and ease. That's when we're most susceptible to falling. And the, the historians say, boy, they were really close to just becoming absorbed into the Borg, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know, just becoming absorbed into the Philistines' world. In fact, the Philistines will eventually fall away from history because they themselves are absorbed because they stand for nothing. And so at this moment, when they are falling asleep, Israel, in this story, shows the signs of being very happy to not, not have a judge. In fact, there's not a cry for a savior All the other times, remember, the oppression comes and they cry out, no cry for a savior now. Now they're quite content to be under the thumb of of the Philistines. On 16 different occasions in the four chapters, from 13 to 16, 16 different occasions you hear the word up or down, meaning Samson goes up to the Philistine land and the Philistines come down into Israel. 
Now, that may seem like nothing, but when you see it happening over and over, what it's saying is the borders between the two countries are porous. They're open borders. The cultures are so similar now, similar to Canada and the United States, that it's really not difficult to get across the borders. Even for a wanted criminal like Samson, he can travel up and down. And so there's a diminishing dis the, uh, distinction between what is Israelite and what is Philistine that we see in the story. It then goes even further that when Samson starts trouble with the Philistines, the Israelites, as we just read, come to him and say, what are you doing? Don't you know there are overloads? There are rulers over us. We don't want trouble. In fact, we're going we're to arrest Samson and bring him to the Philistines. So not only do they not, are they content, they're resisting the judge for the first time. And so are you seeing now the slow dissolve, the slow decay, where Samson seems to be the only person so far who has, is trying, and not for noble reasons, but he's the only one who seems like he's not completely a Philistine yet, though he's very, very close. And so, there's this um, a book that was, I think it was actually banned uh, in the 60s, I don't think it is anymore, by a guy named Henry Miller called The Tropic of Capricorn. He also wrote Tropic of Cancer, very racy. I don't suggest you read it unless you, uh, well, don't read it. Um, <laughs> but in it, it's a kind of semi-autobiographical, and Henry Miller is, ta is talking about himself and how he, he doesn't like American culture, and he's trying to resist becoming one of them. And here's what he says. If you elect to join the herd, you're immune. To be accepted and appreciated, you must nullify yourself, make yourself indistinguishable from the herd. You may dream if you dream alike. And so he captures what's happening, and we see it today, don't we? In fact, if you were attending our class for the last four weeks where I talked about different heresies through the church and liberalism, the church in the 20th century or 19th century started to think the way to flourish in this world is to become just like the world. Let's interpret scripture like it. Let's talk about God like it. Christ isn't supernatural. He's just a dude, a good teacher. The Bible isn't the inerrant word of God. It's just uh, suggestions and mythology. That's all it is. And they think by doing that, they call themselves progressive and they're, and they're gloating about it. And the Bible says it's not progressive, it's heresy, it's a sin. Because we, as a distinct people, are called to remain distinct. And Israel has lost its desire to be distinct at this point. It's, it says, you know, if this is why, if you know, if you've been around me long enough, you've heard this. Israel, for thousands of years, is beaten on the anvil of God. He takes his people for himself, and he hammers them and hammers them and hammers them to make them look and smell like him so that when the world sees them, they will realize it's God at work in their midst so that they can then bring the, the word of God and the, and the goodness of God to the world. This is the plan. But in shaping Israel to look like him, he has made them wretched to the world. And so every time the world gets near Israel, Old Testament and still to this day, they rage. When people get near people who know God, they rage. In fact, Tanner mentioned it. Psalm 2 is what they quote in, 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 in Acts. Why do the nations rage? Right? Why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? Well, it's because they don't like him. They don't want him. And so Israel, however, at this point realizes, you know what? It's easier to offend God than the world. So let me just become a Philistine. Let me just adapt the way they think, the movies, they, well, they take our context, the movies they watch, the way they think about things, the way they read scripture, the way they deal with relationships and identity. Let's just do it. It's much easier. And it is easier. There's no doubt about it. It's easier, as Henry Miller says, to become like the herd. Because if you look just like all the other ones, no one will ever call you out. 
right? And here's the irony. In this culture, we think we're being unique when we choose our own gender or when we do these very seemingly progressive and liberal things. But don't you see, you're just like everyone else. You're following the lie that everyone else is following. And so Israel is in this position. They're tired. They're falling asleep. And what does God have to do when his very people that he promised to never let go won't respond to him, won't listen, and don't want him? What does he do with the sleeping people? And that leads us to point two. Here comes Samson. Enter Samson. Samson is this bewitching sort of character, isn't he? He's, um, <laughs> he's all at once winsome in his weirdness and the occasional moment. You know, every once in a while he says something good and you're like, ah, that's good. But most of the time he's just like Israel. So he's this really enigmatic sort of character. And if you look, he's actually really close to being a Philistine himself. In fact, razor thin. Because if you read the story, go through it this week with your groups even, and highlight when he interacts with Jews or when he acts with Philistines, and you're going to see something. He has no Jewish friends, only Philistine friends. He attends only Philistine parties, no Jewish parties. He has, um, uh, he has no relations with any Jewish women, just Philistine women. The only time he interacts with Jews is when they come to arrest him. And so he is this, most of the time he spends time in Philistine land. So he is very close. So remember, he is not here in this story because he's a hero and some wonderful human being. He's here because God needs somebody, and you're going to see why. He needs somebody to help wake up Israel. So, but, he's, but there are qualities there we're going to talk about as well. But let me walk through his story because I only read a few verses, and it's a long story. But let me try to do it as quickly, but stopping along the way to show his heart, who Samson is. The story begins in chapter 13 with his parents hearing from the angel of God that they're going to have this son. And he, he is to be a Nazarite, meaning he is to be set apart for God and have a special relationship with God and commitment and vows towards God. It's in Numbers 6 if you want to read the regulations for a Nazarite. And in those, there's basically three things that they're expected to do. One is um, don't drink any alcohol. In fact, don't even touch the rind of a grape. Nothing. So no alcohol. Second one is um, don't cut your hair. The third one is don't touch a dead corpse, any sorts of dead bodies of people or of animals. And so, and if you do, the way you break the vow is by cutting your hair. You would go to a priest and say, okay, my time of being a Nazarite is up, and they would snip off the hair that grew in that time, and the vow is broken, okay? So this is who he's supposed to be. And the first, we don't hear anything of his childhood. Chapter 14 opens with a story of him going into Philistine land and seeing a woman that he wants. It doesn't matter that his dad is supposed to find him a wife. He becomes the aggressor, turns to his dad, and says, and I quote, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And the Hebrew is actually more terse. It's get her good in eyes. That's all it says. So he's gruff. He knows what he wants. And the eyes are vital. We can't go through it here. But trace the eyes. He gets his eyes gouged out later, right? And it's constantly you're seeing he sees something and he wants it. And you can't help but remember Genesis 3. Eve sees the tree. She sees the fruit and saw that it was, it was a delight to her eyes and good for eating. And so the eyes become, for Samson, it's the great irony. He's the only one who sees, but he's blind. And then when he's blind is the only time he actually crawls out to God with any sort of faith at all. And it's this great irony of the eyes. So moves on. After that, Samson encounters a lion in the middle of the wilderness, and he kills the lion. 
I'll talk more about that in a minute when we get to God's part. But when he does that, he so becomes unclean because he touches a dead animal. Um, in fact, he's broken a law as well, which we're going to talk about, because God seems to be the one who tells him to marry a non-Jew, which is against the very law of God. So here we have God seemingly being okay and encouraging somebody to break the law. Interesting. We'll talk about that a little at the end. And you can talk more in your groups this week, because I won't do it justice. After killing this animal and becoming personally unclean, he then comes upon its corpse, and he finds that bees have made a hive in it, and he starts to dig out the honey and eat it. He again becomes further unclean, and then he shares the honey with his parents. And then he knows what he's done is wrong, so he's now made them unclean, and because he then hides what he's done. So we know he knows what he's doing. So here's a guy who has now broken, well, that's one, at least one of the Nazarite vows. He's about to break them all right now. Next thing he does is he has an engagement feast. He's going to marry this woman, this, this Tim Knight woman. And he gets drunk, so he drinks. So there's another one down. And he decides in his, I won't say, I'll say wisdom with air quotes, to have a, with the in-laws, his new in-laws, he decides, let's have a little party game where I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you can't solve it, you have to give me 30 sets of clothing, 30 Armani suits, and, um, or whatever it was, but suits of clothing. And then he tells them a riddle they cannot possibly know. So in other words, he goes to his in-laws to extort money from them, I guess. And he thinks this is a good idea. They then realize this is a sham. So they go to his fiance, who they know, obviously, family. And they say, tell us the answer to this riddle. She figures it out. And let me be clear about this because I can't spend time. Women are not portrayed nicely, it would seem, in the story of, of Samson. But don't be distracted. It's, the women are not the problem here. The problem is Samson cannot resist women. He can fight and kill and resist any man, but the moment a woman says something, he falls and falls and falls. It's to show his failing, not women's failing. Okay? So she tells them, uh, tells them the, this, the, the, the answer to the riddle. They get it right. And Samson, you know, I wouldn't suggest men you say this, especially not so close to Valentine's Day. He says to the men, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have found out my riddle. Ooh, that's harsh. So, he's upset. They, uh, and then he decides he's going to, uh, he has to pay this debt, right? So, to pay this debt, he has no money, so he then goes to the nearby village, and he kills 30 men and steals their clothes and brings it back and gives it to them. This escalates quickly, obviously. And then he has to, um, he goes back to the, the family to get his fiance, and they say, sorry, we gave her to somebody else. So now we have trouble. They're poking the bear and Samson, it's bad. So Samson in retaliation, again, because he's like a child, right? He has to retaliate. What are you doing, Samson? I'm only doing to them what they did to me. Yeah, that's what 12-year-olds do. So he does this, and what does he do? He gets foxes. Very, it's maybe a little excessive. He could have just set things on fire, but he chooses to use foxes, and he sets them, ties them together by the tail and puts a torch in the middle somehow, and then they run through the fields, burning all the fields of this family and in the region. This uh, obviously doesn't go over very well with him. So uh, they also find out, he also finds out that his fiance then is killed by the men. They're so upset with Samson, they kill his fiance and her father. They burn him to death. So this then causes a big problem. They approach, this is what we just read. They approach Samson to arrest him, the, the Jews do, because he's, his, this has become an international problem. It's a big deal. But when they come, he kills them a thousand of these Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. And in this, 
this, this pun, something very interesting happens. He uses this pun. He says, with a job over a donkey, I have made heaps and heaps. What you don't see in English is the word heap is the word for donkey, very similar. So what he is saying is, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've made donkeys out of them. So you have to consider this. You have a man who has just killed a thousand people. He's probably covered in blood, and now he's making a joke. This is not a stable human being, right? So it's odd. It's very strange. This is, this is him. Um, he then calls out in hope because he's dying. He's thirsty, right? I'm thirsty. Give me water, O Lord. God gives him water. And then what does he name the spring? spring of the one who calls, not the one who answered his call. Isn't that interesting? He should have probably called it the spring where God answers my prayer or something to that effect, but he doesn't. He instead says, I'm going to name it after my call, because I called out to God. Interesting. Typical with his character, but it moves on. He then spread, it's such a great story, but I have no time for it. Right after this and being, having his thirst quenched, he then goes to Gaza to sleep with a prostitute, and then carries away the gates of the city on his shoulders. I don't have time for that. I know it's tantalizing to speak about. He does that. And then he meets, finally, Delilah, who, again, has a bad rap. She should, I mean, she, to an extent. But who's, remember that song from the 50s? Run, Samson, run, Delilah's on her way. Yeah. Huh? I'd sooner trust a hungry lion than a girl with a cheating heart. Like, that's not really fair to poor Delilah, Delilah, because <laughs> Samson's a bit of a scoundrel. But... She is then offered what's the equivalent of about $15 million to turn him in. So a big bounty on Samson's head. And the story, as you know, goes back and forth where she's trying to figure out the secret of his strength. And he eventually gives in. Again, let's not come out of it saying Delilah is a deceiver. Samson cannot resist women. Again, it's easy to get to the heart of Samson. You know where his heart is. It's very simple to find. So... When he gets his hair cut, it's also interesting that we're told by the narrator that, his, that God left him and he did not know it. So here's a man who's called of God but doesn't even recognize when God is with him or not. Interesting, but it goes on. He gets his eye, eyes gouged out. He entertains the, the, the Philistines at the temple of Dagon, of their God. Um, and then he cries out for one last thing and even this last cry is questionable. Because he cries out, not in repentance, not for God's will to be done, but give me one more chance to kill these guys. One more act of vengeance. And God does it. We're going to answer, we're going to talk about that in the last point. So God seems to be with this guy all through, helping him along. And the contrast between him and Othniel, the first judge, cannot be more stark. Othniel is this perfect marriage with the daughter of Caleb, Oxa. He, in four verses, accomplishes everything, including the salvation of Israel. We have now Samson, in four chapters, has nothing but dysfunctional relationships with women, and in four chapters can't deliver Israel, is unable to. And so the contrast is there on purpose. He is sensual, and yet, here's one thing we have to say about him. In this world of Israel at the time, where none seek God, he occasionally did. No one else is crying out to God. But Samson does, and I'm not justifying any of his behavior, obviously. And yet, do you see this glimmer? He's the only one who is in any way saying, God, God, where are you? Help me. Even if it's broken, he's the only one who's somewhat resisting falling asleep in the arms of the Philistines. And so, here's the great com complexity of, of, of Samson, right? Because he is all at once the best of Israel and a reflection of Israel. He's the best they have available at the time. And yet he's exactly like them, and he's not very far from becoming another cipher, another 
Philistine in the midst. And so this leads to the last part. What is God doing amidst all of these things? And he's doing a lot. He is there waking up Israel. Okay? This, is the, this is the key. If we're going to get something from this story, I think we have to see how God speaks to try to keep his church from falling asleep in the arms of the culture it finds itself in. Especially today, we are now exiles, Peter says, and Paul speak about in the world, because we no longer live in a country that has a theocratic government, where the government rules the country by the rule of the law of the Bible. And so we are now exiles in a secular country where we have to try to remain distinct amidst the world that is trying to make us like them. And so, what the lessons here we need to pay attention to. And here is, I think, what is going on. First, go all the way back to the beginning of the Samson story in chapter 13, verse 5. And you see the call, when God, the Lord speaks to his parents, he says, your son will be the one who will begin to liberate Israel from, from the Philistines. Will begin to save them. So, his job is not to save Israel. He was never expected to. His job was to pick a fight with Israel. That's his job. You begin the fight. It's going to be stopped later with David. We know what's going to happen eventually in 150 years or so. So his job is to do that. Why is that important? This is why. As Israel is falling asleep, the deeper sleep someone is in, they don't need a nudge. They don't need a word. They need a smack. And at this point in history, they don't need a scalpel. They need a sledgehammer, one commentator says. Because you don't need Ehud with his cunning. You don't need a cunning leader. You certainly don't need Gideon, who is a man who needs constant assurance because he's not going to find it because these people will hate him. Gideon is not a man who can do it all by himself. He needs the approval of others. He, what God needs, says a commentator, rightly so, is he needs a guy so obtuse. He needs someone so self-centered, so self-assured, that even when the world is against him, he's going to say, I'm going to still do it. He needs someone who is willing to stay awake when everyone else is sleeping. It's almost like if you've, again, taken the classes we've been doing, Athanasius. He's fighting in the 4th century against this, this heresy called Arianism. And eventually he retreats to a cave to be alone. And someone comes to him and says, Aria, or Athanasius, the world is against you. And Athanasius says, then I'm against the world. That's sort of stubbornness. You need a guy who is so pig-headed here so pig-headed that when his entire nation comes and says, we're going to sell you off and kill you and give you over to the enemy, he's like, I don't care, I'm still going to fight. We need somebody who is willing to smash a wall down, not slice it open neatly. And Samson, and I'm not justifying his behavior, we see God all through the book of Judges using broken people, not justifying their behavior, but showing that God will never let you fall asleep. He will use what he's got on the bench to save you. And so, one thing, is, one thing is certain, peace with the Philistines is not an option. Not an option for Israel. Because peace has led them here, and it will only lead to their disappearance. So God needs someone who will come and just pick a fight. And watch how brilliantly God does it, because he is sovereign, and he will use even sin for his glory. And that's hard for us, I get it, it's hard. And I'm not suggesting, somebody always comes up to me after this sermon and says, does that mean Donald Trump is Samson? I'm like, please stop talking that way. Please stop talking that way. Donald Trump is not Samson. That's not the point of this. This isn't a Veggie Tale sermon. The point of this is to show God's hand on you, not anyone else's. So, sorry, I have to say that. 
let's see what God is doing. Because God shows up. His spirit comes upon Samson. He seems to be okay in justifying it. But look at what he does. First, he tells Samson, or it's suggested that he says, the parents didn't know that God was putting this woman in front of, this non-Jewish woman in front of Samson, because he knew Samson. You see, he is using Samson's lust for his own glory. He knows if he just puts this woman in front of him, Samson's going to chase her and this and, and he'll be able to accomplish what he needs. And so he puts this woman in front of Samson. He falls for this woman, this foreign woman, and it leads to all the trials. He then, but before we get to the interrelational problems, note he reached, meets the lion and he kills this lion. What's going on there? Because it says the Spirit of God came upon him. Why, does he need, like, why would the Spirit of God come to kill a lion? It's not to kill the lion. The point is much like with David later. The point is, Samson, you need to know when you have no other hope, God is your hope. He will save you amidst this. He's trying to get through to the pig-headed Samson. And then he kills... Look at how, how this, this, this escalates on purpose. The first thing, it starts with the family. He picks a fight with the family, the Philistine family with his riddle. When that fails, he goes next door to a city and kills the 30 guys. It, that, so now a domestic squabble has become a municipal squabble. Then, after more back and forth, he burns the region's farmland. So now this has gone from domestic, municipal, regional. He then kills a thousand people, the Philistines, and I'll tell you, you kill a thousand people of any country, it's now a national problem, right? When a, train hit, when a plane hit the World Trade Center, I think it was 2,600 or something, died, but still, that was no longer a regional issue. That became an international conflict, right? And so, then from there, it doesn't stop there. God has said, I need a fight to go. This, the, I can't let them fall asleep. So I'm going to pick a fight that cannot be reversed until we finish it. And so what happens next? In the temple of Dagon, he knocks it down. And there's a question in your community group questions. Ask, is he a suicide bomber? Is Samson a suicide bomber? Killing himself and, and others? I won't discuss that here. You can do it in your community groups. But when he does that, it goes from being an international struggle to a cosmic one. It's your God and my God. Because the issue here is not people only. It's principalities and powers. You're believing things that are lies, and I'm going to crush them all. And by this point, once Samson is done being Samson, there can be no peace anymore. Philistines don't want Israel, and Israel don't want the Philistines because it's escalated too much. And so God has accomplished exactly what he had to accomplish, saving his people. Now, something is going on, though, that we have to... So many questions. There's such a, so many theological questions in this story. One of them is this. It says God leaves him. After he gets his hair cut, Samson's vow is broken, it seems, right? That's the vow of the Nazarite. You break, your hair gets cut, the vow in your relationship with God, the, the, the covenant is broken. And so at that moment, it says, and then God left him. So this causes problems for me, not now, but it did when I read it, thinking a long time ago. Can I sin so much that God will leave me? Because why does he withdraw from Samson? Because he's broken every vow repeatedly, and now he's cut the covenant off, so I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm through with you. If that's the case, you and I cannot be secure in our faith. If you can run away from God once he has his hand on you, I'm sorry, you have no business being, being secure in your faith. Because if your faith in God is only, only as strong as your grip on him, you're finished. I'm sorry, there's no other way of saying it. So I have a problem with this passage until you see something, that God comes back and answers his call later, right? Now, what is God doing? This is what I think what God is doing. He is withdrawing from Samson 
to show Samson that he has no hope without him. Samson, I've been with you. If I pull back, I'm leaving you now. I'm going to let you see what your life will be without me. And he withdraws just far enough to let Samson know he has no hope without God. Then Samson finally cries out. Seems pretty good, but again, he just wants to kill. It's just revenge. I don't think there's anything noble. You can disagree with me. There's nothing noble in Samson's behavior here. Only in the God who uses his ignoble, ignobility, is that a word? For his glory. Now, when this is done, here's one thing you should know right away. You see, when Paul in Romans says, as sin abounded, grace abounded more, you know what he's saying? It's so beautiful what Paul's saying. I, I don't know if we ever spend enough time on it. He's saying this, the bigger the sin, the more the sin happens, the more grace required to forgive it. If, if my child um, just misses, you know, stays up late and is just disobeying a little, that's a, I have to forgive him. But if they do something more severe, if there's a murder, that's really extreme, but um, then you see more grace is required given the size of the offense. And what Paul is saying, he's not encouraging people to keep sinning, but he's saying, do you see how much God loves you? That the more your sin grew, the more grace he had to show, and he was willing to. He didn't withdraw and leave Samson and leave Israel to say, fine, it's enough of you. Go, be Philistines if you want. But as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we're seeing this beautifully here because Samson, like it or not, like all the judges, shows us Christ. Sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. He shows us first, well, he's called from the womb to be a savior, which is very Christ-like. No other judge is called from the womb. But he's also betrayed by his own people, right? The people He's trying to save a people, and brokenly, as Samson does it, Christ comes as the perfect judge, trying to save his people, and they betray him. It's eventually only Christ against the world, much like it is Samson. So he's pointing in that way to Christ as well. And the sin of Samson was used to save Israel. And now Christ has no sin, but on the cross, he uses your sin to save you. And I said this, I'll say it maybe every week, and it should be said every week. You were at your very worst in Israel on Good Friday. Humanity has never been any worse than they were on the day when they killed God. However, the very worst we can be was used to save us because his grace abounded as our sin was at its bottom, its nadir, its low point. This is why we look and we see Samson and we should see Christ in him, not because Samson's good, but because God is good, right? So let me end just turning very, very quickly back to Dorian Gray. At the end of Dorian Gray, if you've not read the story, here's what happens. We, at the very opening of the book, his friend has painted a picture of him. It's a picture of Dorian Gray. And the picture ends up getting stuck up in an attic. And as Dorian Gray continues to be a scoundrel, just sleeping around, doing, just living his, his sensual lifestyle. And all the while, he never looks any different. And then one day, he goes up to the attic to look at this beautiful picture, and he finds the picture has aged that even though the picture was drawn of him looking all beautiful, he now looks broken and disfigured somehow. And the, what, what Oscar Wilde is getting at, and Oscar Wilde was not a Christian, but Oscar Wilde struggled with his own identity issues. And in it, he is saying, all of the things you do with your life may not look right on the, one way on the outside, but you are disfiguring your image. There's an image of God in you that you're disfiguring with all of your choices to live like everyone else, like the world. And there is a cost for it at some point. 
And the gospel comes and says that Christ came to restore that image, even though he didn't deserve it. And the only way, only hope we have to escape falling into the world and leaving and being, not being part of the church, but with the only hope you have is for God to come and say, I will take that marred image that you have all marred, we've all marred, and I will restore it by my grace. It's the only hope you have. You can't do it on your own. We become more Philistines and marred until Jesus saves us because he came, unlike Samson, he didn't save by heaping bodies upon bodies, but upon laying down his own. And because of that, he's the only image we ought to worship. With that, let's pray.